we have to go on together, hand in hand, to find this just world that we want. Hello, and welcome to Ethiopia Together. This is a new podcast series where we're going to be sharing the stories of some of the amazing people who work across Ethiopia to bring an end to preventable poverty. The following interview is with Lisa Cousins, Ethiopia's CEO. Please remember that any of the views expressed by anyone being interviewed are not necessarily those held by Ethiopia. Hello, I'm Lisa Cousins, CEO at Ethiopia Aid, and today I'm talking to Valerie Browning, co-founder of one of our partner organisations in Ethiopia, the Afar Pastoralist Development Association, also known as ABDA. So ABDA has been a partner of Ethiopia since 2015, um, and in that time we have worked together to help some of the most vulnerable communities in the region. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, all the way from afar in Ethiopia. Well, thank you very much, Lisa. It's a pleasure. I didn't have to travel far. This is a fun I am in summer, in the middle of Afar region, having a good time, yeah, in my office today. But it's a pleasure to talk to you, but it always is, because, I mean, with our Ethiopia UK and the people that you connect with, I don't know where these Afar would have been this year. I really don't. I'm seeing... Mm. Mm. Well, look, I'm, I'm sat in the southwest of England in a very foggy, murky grey village on the outskirts of Bristol. Um, a lot of the people listening to us now may not have been to Ethiopia or certainly may not have been to Afar. So can you just give us an idea of what it's like to live and work in Afar, Valerie? I could give you a bit of a picture because I've been here 31 years. Okay. Wow. If my English is poor, it's because I'm from Australia. So, I mean, <laughs> actually, I was born in Sussex, so there you go. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was. So near, near the Longman of Wilmington, near. Really? Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. I didn't yeah. know that. Or Friston was where the, cal- the calves were sold. I was born in Horn. Mm. So, there you are. But I can't say I know it and I've been back. I know this mm. part of the world now. Been here 31 years, as I say. And there's been enormous changes in 31 years. I mean, when I came, Afar, yes, they are elit- They were utterly illiterate. They were without vaccine. They were without maternal care. They were all doing FGM. Uh, but they were, in a sense, okay. In, okay in that they had food and that they were able to survive. And in when I first knew them, I saw little boys, well, young teenage-ish boys, throwing milk at each other just for fun, you know. Wow. <laughs> and now they can't find the tea. I mean, the, sh- the milk that fits in the bottom of the teacup for, for tea. So that is how extreme it's become. Uh, and, and so many animals have died, so many in that period from drought, repeated drought, and then floods, flash floods come and sweep away all the animals while they're sleeping at night. Um, that happens. And this year we've had enormous amount of locusts, unbelievable number of locusts. They've just changed day to night, the locusts. Mm. Blackened out the landscape. By- so the, lo- the, lo- the locust swarm um, is something that we've helped you with this year. So we had an, uh, an emergency appeal with our supporters at the beginning of the year. And we raised over one hundred and seventy thousand pounds, and we've so far we've sent out to you now two hundred and seventy thousand this year for uh, sort of 
interventions to help the people and communities affected by locust storms yeah. and the flooding now as well. So is that making a big that is that making a big difference? It, we would have had enormous numbers of deaths, and the deaths mm. occurred with children and with uh, young mothers, pregnant mothers, and these sorts of people. We've still got horrible malnutrition, but where we've been able to reach your assistance, it's now plateaued completely and we're holding in. But, yeah, I mean, now we're still continuing with your help because those locusts ate everything that came green from the rain of August and September, everything. And so there's nothing for the animals. And at that point, nothing for the animals means no milk, for the children or the pregnant mothers or the breastfeeding mothers, uh, people are nomads. They don't live where there's shops. They don't live where there is any facility at all, nothing. So they depend on their animals entirely for their food and for marketing. Uh, and now the animals have become so weak. So with your fund as well, we're treating animals, we're bringing them hay, and we're keeping those animals alive which is absolutely fabulous. I mean, without that, I'm sure we would have been in an absolute catastrophe much deeper than we are now. I know that. So, you know, obviously I've touched on the fact that we've, this year we've raised quite a huge amount of money through our supporters for the work that you're doing there in response to emergencies like that. But, um, you know, I think one of the things for, for our listeners to understand is that um with their support we're able to make decisions really quickly so you know we're in close contact with you you tell us about the issues that your communities are facing and we're able to make a, a quick decision about whether we can send funding and how much we can send so you know maybe it'd be good if you could give give us an idea of you know how important the ability of being able to make swift decisions well it's it's um it's life and death really lisa uh the situation is that for example, from the government side, there's no veterinary treatment, no veterinary medicines. And so if we haven't got the medicines there, the animals die. It's like burning up your bank account in Britain. I mean, that's your asset, what you put in the bank and what you've got, I don't know, you stowed under the bed or wherever you put it. But I mean, <laughs> if you burn the whole lot, then you're zero. Issue of getting fast is absolutely adamant to survival. Uh, mm. The same if they're without milk, without food, unless they have some form of supplementary food, then we have little skeletons for babies and are just a horrible situation. Uh, we can't tolerate. You've you really have stood beside the RFR enormously this year, huh? Um, and the pay is so important. Everything is so important. Yeah, um, mm. it's all together to keep the animals alive, to keep those assets there. So there's something in the house. They have nothing but the goats. Nothing. So they've not got employment. They've not got a job to go to or a salary to think about, or uh, um, even have shops to go to buy any form of. Uh, food aside from what is they're getting themselves. There's no mm. um, the closest market is supply to seven days walk away. That's that's incredible, really. And I mean, just to think, you know, there's lots of hardships that these communities are facing, but 
COVID-19 pandemic, obviously, which has hit, you know, globally, um, and that's reached Ethiopia. And um, my understanding is that, you know, the the sort of lockdown that the country has faced has meant that marketplaces have been closed. People have been unable to sell their, you know, their 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 vegetables and their, their produce at the side of the road or do petty trade. So has that impacted your communities in afar in the same way? It did. It did for, uh, let's see, April, May, June, July. And then mm. somehow the government had to let up, give up, because the people were in such a desperate, desperate, desperate condition. They stopped some of the big markets. They closed them. Uh, the transport mm. to get anywhere went up at least twice so people couldn't travel. And then when you got on the bus, they said, oh, no, the bus is full when it was half full. And so, I mean, it was very uncomprehendable for the community. But uh, now we've got so much else to worry about <laughs> with the flood, with the locusts. And, yes, and with other unfortunate things happening on our border now, I don't know whether the virus is different around the world, but it doesn't seem to be, thank God, as strong with us. You know, some some people just sort of playing devil's advocate a bit. Some people might suggest that, um, you know, the communities that you work within in afar, that, you know, seems to be crisis after crisis, climate shock after climate shock. Um, and that maybe, you know, maybe they should move elsewhere. Maybe they should move into towns, get jobs. You know, what, what would you say to that? Oh, well, I know. <laughs> what would you say to that, Valerie? <laughs> I would say there's no possibility. The land is totally arid. Um, it's like uh, it is the hottest inhabited place on earth, and ninety three percent of them are nomadic pastoralists. Uh, the biggest town is forty thousand people. That's one town only. Uh, the other towns are seven thousand, three thousand, five thousand, something like that, all along the roadway. Um, and the town is truck stops. They're truck stops coming from the port of Djibouti. Uh, and there is no industry in Afar, not a single industry. So, I mean, what are they going to do, these people? And so unless they have their herd to live off, there is nothing to live off. And those who are in the town, for the people in the country to help them. So it's so, I mean, the towns of Afar are not booming towns at all, which are just truck stops, really. Yeah, I think that's really important that that um, you know the people listening to this understand because that that some that is a quite frequently a comment that we will get why why aren't these people moving to somewhere else where they can prosper? But you know your point is that actually the whole of Afar is it is a very arid, desolate but beautiful landscape, and and it's it's hard to live there, and that the way that they live is the best way possible, best way forward for them. Yes, and. You know, I've lived with the other, I said, 21 years from Australia, and I think they're amazing ecologists. They just know how to live on so little, so little water. They know every blade of grass, every tree for what they're useful for, um, mm. and they take the best use they can. But 2020 has been a, a pretty unkind year, so that in the end um, we've had crisis upon crisis, very unusual. <laughs> These locals mm. have never been here like this in people's living memory. We've never had a flood we have had just now for the last 50, maybe even longer years. The Awash River's never done this. So, I mean, 
We've never seen all this on top of each other before. Mm. That's just just stuff. But just going back to to you, Valerie. I mean, what what drew you to afar? What drew you to the region? What you know, was it something you'd always dreamed of doing as a child or a young woman oh, working no. working somewhere like this? No, no, no. Um, I've lived, I might say, as a Western woman, a very privileged life because I've lived inside the upper, but not by choice. One thing I didn't do is choose. And one thing I didn't do is think about it. <laughs> um, um, I married my husband in 89, but I'd only met him in 86, three years previously. What drove me through as far as I've gone is I saw in uh, the end of the Haile Selassie's regime, which is 1973-74, as a 22-year-old, I saw people starve. And I was completely blown I mean, Sydney is where I'd come from. I did training as a nurse. Sydney is a, not nowhere near as big as some of your cities, but it's quite large. It's about three, four million. Uh, and everywhere, corner, every street corner, there's food. I tell you, you can eat. You can, Australians grain food. They eat snacks all day long. And these people had died without being able to eat for weeks on end. It was unbelievable. Huh? So yeah. one woman I remember when I was 22, she put the first child on my lap in the morning, that child died, midday, another child, the third child in the evening. And it just shocked me that one mother lost three children from malnutrition in the space of a day. That's horrific. Yeah. That's horrific. She's burying them. Has, yes. It's just mm. horrible, horrible to think about it. But, uh, yeah. And the injustice of that is what got me. Well, I mean, how did it happen? I mean, I was a 22-year-old, not well taught, not with internet, not with all the information today. It's not that that sometimes helps. It doesn't help sometimes. But um, why why face injustice? Is that what drove you to create ABDA? Well, as 22, I vowed myself but I would always work for local people. I would not work for Western people. I saw what Western people were doing in the Horn, which I didn't think was the best. They were thinking of themselves as kind of the answer themselves. They were not mm. helping to build the capacity of people. That upset me enormously. Um, and then I worked, I, I worked in Western Australia. Those money for a foreign ticket and kept coming back and forth, back and forth to the Horn of Africa. Uh, and what I was doing basically was taking information. I was also working freelance for uh, BBC Focus on Africa. Uh, Robin White was my best friend in BBC at the time. And it was video. Mm. And so I plug in and away I go, giving me another report. All freelance, no, I mean, it, I mean, it was all voluntary. Eventually, in 86, I met my husband. 89, we married. 91, there was a civil war in Djibouti that meant that the Afar were being turned out of Djibouti into Ethiopia, my husband's Afar. Um, and in, from then onwards, we were in Ethiopia, but walking into Djibouti to help the people. Uh, and by 96, the war was over. So the organisation came from the work we did in the civil war. So your well, your personal ethos and obviously the approach of ABTA is to work 
locally at ground level with with local organizations local people to affect change and that's certainly something that you know Ethiopia was founded in 1989 and and um Sir Alec Reid our founder his vision was always that Ethiopians have the solutions to their own problems they just needed some support to put that into action and that's that's always been the way that we we work and and always will be is that we you know, we raise money in the UK, we give grants to partners like ABDA in Ethiopia for you to then do what you feel is the best thing to address the challenges and issues that you're facing. So, you know, we as a as a partnership, I think that we work really well together. We share very common ethos and common we approach. We do. Yeah, great. It's like, you know, if you've got a problem, it's your problem. You've got to solve it. I can yes. offer advice. If you ask me, maybe I'll have something I could give you to help you, but you have to ask me. You have to you have to um, uh, be in the forefront of the issue and then you find your own solution. Yeah, I think we should go forward. And I really believe that's the way we should treat humans all over the world with dignity rather than mm. what to do, rather than impacting upon them. Huh? Uh, exactly. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about the work you're you're doing to bring an end to female genital mutilation? Because that that's a key area of work that we support you with. Um, and I know it's a horrific, harmful practice. But every time I read the case studies that come from yourselves, it's just it just really strikes deeply within me. Yeah, well, it's extremely important to our whole program. And we built the program on literacy so people get awareness and so people open their eyes, open their brain. If they're illiterate, they will follow their ancient culture, which is a Mm. thousand years old. They started the gym through a relation, it seems, with the pharaonic dynasty of Egypt. That's how they started the gym. Um, and the, I can't believe they were the slaves of the father. Work through the whole issue of what it is for a woman or a female or a girl to be repressed because of her gender. She can't go to school because of her gender. She must work in the house. She must do all the hard work, all the strenuous work. The brother doesn't have to. He can go to school. Uh, the father chooses his wife. He demands a wife. She has to marry him. That's difficult. If this girl doesn't want to get married, yeah? and mm-hmm. they end up marrying a man very much older than her, she never dreamed of having. So there are many ways which females are repressed for the sake of the family, for the sake of reproduction, for the sake of the clan. And so we work through all this with them, uh, through sympathy, through awareness, through having what we call woman extension workers, who are trained women from the community who are daily raising awareness on stopping uh, female genital mutilation, early marriage, and raising awareness on stopping other harmful practices to do with childbirth. So in the end, Abdar is working alongside the women, inside the women, to get them a better deal within their community. They can get the deal. So... Yeah. For example, years ago, I mean, even seven, eight years ago, it was unheard of for an Afar woman to ever be able to get divorced. Divorce isn't good, but, I mean, if she needs it, she needs it, right? She couldn't get it. Impossible. Impossible. Man can divorce a woman, but woman never divorces a man. 
now we've put through with many, many communities and they're now able as women to stand up and say, I cannot continue with this marriage. I cannot. It's hurting me. It's hurting the children. I can't continue. Huh? And she can get it. But unfortunately, we still have got to get to the bottom of it all because she has to pay quite a lot of money. Huh? So there's a lot yeah. of things we're working, working, working through. There's a long way to go. We've done a lot of work, especially with the Aid UK, so that we can be much more bolder in the community. And now we're engaging with plan leadership to make them much, much, much more responsible that they will see that leading a girl, punishing a girl, is actually the same as what they are punishing when they punish people for killing. So they should do that. They should put it into that category. So now we're hopeful by next year we'll have it into that clan category and the clan leaders will start to punish them. The people of the Afar live a long way from their government services very often, away from the police, away from the law, away from the courthouse. Because FGM is illegal, isn't it? It is illegal. Illegal. In, in the Constitution, illegal. And yeah. you should be either imprisoned or heavily fined. But it's impossible for the government to track them. Impossible. And anyway, Afar uh, don't understand the legal system at all well. We're going to have a conference, I hope, next month with, uh, with the leading traditional leader of the Afar and the main traditional leaders plus the government and see if we can get them to sit together and agree together. Yeah. That, that, that facilitation is so important, isn't it? I mean, because... You you know you're you're working really hard to stop FGM, but it's not a quick fix. You don't you can't go into a community and and it just stops the next the next week. It's a long term oh, approach to changing attitudes, isn't it? Absolutely, and it, it is absolutely because I mean we all have to realise that in any culture at all, there's there's good and bad cultures. You know, um, mm. this one in Afar, they they from a good position. They say that the FGM is protecting the girl protecting her virginity, protecting her as a, from other men and so on. They see that early marriage is good, but this is from their illiterate perspective, from their total overall clan perspective. So illiteracy has to stop. Huh? Mm. We have to work mm. at that as well. Um, and we have to give them the capacity to go forward and to make the changes as they see them. From the outside world, you stand up and say, well, you know, I had, funnily enough, somebody rang me yesterday from the Eastern Highlands, from Bahada, and she said she had five friends who wanted to come rushing to Afar to stop a gym. I said, good luck to you, my dear. Um, so <laughs> she was chatting to me for over an hour and she was going on about, no, she's got a new plan. She's seen it. WHO says that are over 90%. I said, well, nobody coming, even from another Ethiopian community can stop it. They've got to mm. themselves. But it has them. to come from within, yeah. yeah. And so could, could you tell me there's a little bit more about the work you do with the traditional cutters? As you said, make them understand that this is not what should be happening and to help them retrain and actually become advocates for change in the community. Our women extension workers, health workers and, and teachers are moving in the community every single day. So they know who's doing the cutting. So we can identify the cutters. Okay, we can go to them and say, come on, let's talk about, show them. We've got films about of a girl being cut in Kutubla 
She's screaming. The men, firstly, men, and then women are holding her down. So they watch the film. They see the, the, the drama and the, the horrible thing for the girl. They see her, um, what pain she's going through. And then we've got the religious leader who is able to say very clearly that on against the God you believe in. Okay. Eventually, and then we get them to understand that, they will say, oh, I cannot die with blood in my hands. So they get a ridiculous situation where they say, I'm not going to do it again. Okay. And then we move them from that to be a traditional birth attendant. We train them. So we mm. teach them to help women. That's the best way to do it because they've been very close to women thinking they're doing a good job. They've come to a reality that they're doing a terrible job, but now you've got to try and flip them around and give it a positive and let them be a traditional birth attendant, let them to be recognised as that, give them equipment and let them uh, and train them constantly every year, give them more training so that they understand more and more how they can help mother in pregnancy, in, in delivery and so on, and help to lower maternal death. Uh, and mm. Um, and they become, as you say, advocates to their other fellow women who are doing this practice. Uh, changing her, she changes from one to the other, and then the community will always accept her in her new role mm. um, and, and build her up, yes. And lots of, them, lots of those actual uh, FGM cutters, they learn literacy, they learn to read and write. They become it just shows that education is the cornerstone of everything, really, isn't it? Just yeah. being able to have the basic level of literacy, numeracy, and 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 knowledge just will is a change maker for so many. It is. It is. Valerie, what would you say would has been your biggest stumbling block? I mean, I hate to I hate to say biggest failure, but if we call it the biggest stumbling block, because you know, people you you learn from mistakes, you learn from where things have gone wrong. Well, there's an ongoing stumbling block, Lisa. Very few people in the world understand what is a nomad, what is a pastoralist. How could you live in this rocky, seemingly a difficult land to live in? It's very dry, very you're thirsty and so on. In order to build it, you've got to live the lifestyle of a nomad, moving your animals to pasture and water. Even the government of Ethiopia doesn't appreciate that. Euros who are in our region, they don't appreciate that. And so in the end, we're in a battlefield of, you know, why didn't they come to the school? Why didn't they come to the health centre? Why didn't they do that? Look, they live two, three, four, five, up to maybe 10 and even 12 days walk away from the facility. huh? And they're saying, oh, we can't accept any births except that are delivered in the health centre. Now, we're looking after well over, they say 81% of the births, but it's well over 81% are not delivering in, in, in the health centre. They're not cared for. And so we have a mobile health program, mobile teaching program. The women extension workers, of course, are mobile. Um, and it's this dilemma to fit the pastoralist community at all. Huh? Mm. Um, mm. And this is so sad. Well, I mean, this settlement business has gone across the world with pastoralists and made terrible mistakes. Northern Kenya, for example, uh, even um, 
the Mongolia with the Mongolians and so on. Um, so in the end, it's a pity the world doesn't come to the Afa to learn from the Afa how to live in such a difficult uh, environment, how to live with such little water, uh, and how to live such a frugal life, you know. Uh, and so that is a huge challenge. It's awful. It's so disappointing every time, but it's sad. So we have very low vaccination rate. The only vaccination which, uh, which is done, APTA must do, taking a refrigerator and generator to the community on a truck huh? and then walking with camels from that refrigerator. And so we've got yeah. all these massive numbers of people in remote areas just left alone. And yet the government... Have to fill that gap, don't they? They, you know, you're working with the people that can't reach all all of the infrastructure that's being put in place by the government or the aid distribution points when they're a crisis. They're, they're yeah, they're communities that just simply are forgotten. That's exactly right. I mean, it's the mm. most neglected community in Ethiopia. I mean, it's only since the last fifteen years, really, they've had any education for the Afar pastures. Huh? And so, and then all of a sudden, we're supposed to be brilliant. <laughs> so <it's like> <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you know we we think after brilliant, we think you're doing a great great job, Valerie, with you and your team there, and well, uh, all the many people that support you in the community and and sort of enable the work. It's fantastic. Well, it's only it's two hands that clap, and so without Ethiopia, without you and your partners in the. Uh, UK community huh? who really care where would we be I think you're fabulous, colossal wonderful, I mean we get all mm. dribbly dribbly your diffid faded away and went into some form of government office the Australian Ausaid faded away and went into a government office I, I mean you're in the community doing a fabulous job, you really are you're a magnificent oh, well, that's, that's good to hear and I, I think our supporters no, because it's this, our supporters that are enabling us to send the funding to you. So, you know, it, it's, it's uh, you know, let's big them up. And <laughs> that's great, great for Ethiopia donors to, to hear that, Absolutely. you know, their money is reaching people in need. So just to just to finish then, Valerie, do you have um, a message for Ethiopia supporters? I want me to say to all of your supporters that you are the dearest people. You are partners. And while you could say, or only one person can't do anything, or you could say, um, I'm really doing nothing, I'm just giving a little bit of money. You're doing fantastically, you're making possibilities that would not be possible without you. So really, we have to go on together, hand in hand, to find this just world that we want. We don't want FGM. We don't want mothers to die simply in childbirth. We don't want babies to die in hunger either, really. I believe we can do it together. I really do. Well, it's been lovely to speak to you, Valerie. And, um, you know, hopefully I will be able to see you again at some point in the future. I wish you really well and your team really well. Thank you. And thank you so much. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Lisa. If you want to hear more about anything we've discussed or to sign up and support this work, head to our website, at www.ethiopiaid.org.uk mm-hmm.